Good morning. Yeah, I love the fact that when we have these Youth Sundays, we have a group of young people who come up here and they don't perform for us, they lead us. That's impressive. That's impressive. One quick announcement before we get started. A business meeting two weeks from today, June 13th on Sunday morning after second service. All right. Now that's out of the way. So turn with me in your Bibles, if you will, to the book of Judges chapter 2. And while you're finding that, I'll kind of set things up for us. We have a big chunk of Scripture to cover this morning. Chapter 2, verse 6 through chapter 3, verse 6. And this passage is basically a big picture overlook of the, the whole book of Judges. Last week in chapter 1, Pastor Mike highlighted for us the incomplete obedience of the generation of Israel who first entered the promised land. They failed to completely drive out the inhabitants of the promised land as God had commanded them. And today we're going to see a big picture overview of the consequences of that sin on the next generation. And really we're going to look at three separate things. First, we're going to look at the nation of Israel to see what was going on in their lives during this period of time. Second, we're going to look at how God was at work in the nation of Israel during that period of time. And then finally, we're going to try to figure out what we can take away from this passage that applies to our lives several thousand years later. If you remember when we last left Israel, they had failed to obey God fully by not driving out the inhabitants of Canaan. So an angel of the Lord had appeared to them and had pointed out their sin and reminded them of God's covenant with them, in which God had told Israel that if they didn't drive out all these idolatrous people that inhabited the land, they would become as thorns in their sides and a snare, their, their gods would become a snare to Israel. And in response, the, the people lifted up their voices and they wept, they cried. And the place where all of this occurred was named Bacham, which simply means weepers. So at the end of last week, that's where we left off. Israel was weeping because they knew that what the angel was saying was true. Now, they weren't fully repentant, but they did at least acknowledge that they were guilty of this sin by not driving out the inhabitants of the land. So then pick up with me in Judges chapter 2, verse 6. When Joshua had dismissed the people, the sons of Israel went each to his inheritance to possess the land. The people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who survived Joshua, who had all seen the great work of the Lord, which he had done for Israel. Then Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. And they buried him in the territory of his inheritance in timnath Heres, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gash. All that generation were also gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord, nor yet the work which he had done for Israel. Then the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt, and followed other gods from among the gods of the people who were around them, and bowed themselves down to them. Thus they provoked the Lord to anger. So they forsook the Lord and served Baal and the Ashtaroth. We'll stop right there. How could this happen? How in the course of one generation 
Could we go from Joshua standing before the people saying, Choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And the people replying, Far be it from us to forsake the Lord, to serve other gods. For it's He who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, and it's He who preserved us. We will serve the Lord. Yet just one generation later, we read that the generation arose that neither knew the Lord nor the works which He had done for Israel. And they bowed down to idols. How could this happen so fast? After all that Israel had experienced, how could this next generation not know the Lord or the works that he had done for Israel? Was this a colossal failure in parenting by an entire generation? Had they not shared with their kids the things that God had done when they rise up and when they laid down and when they walked by the road and when they sat in their house? Did they not write it on the doorposts of their house? As a D6 church, we kind of need to know this. What went wrong? And unfortunately, it's not spelled out clearly for us here in the text. We can't know for certain everything that went wrong, but I do feel pretty confident in saying that the problem was not that this generation didn't know about the Lord and His mighty works. I feel confident that their parents had told them the stories and had shared their faith with their children. So it wasn't that they didn't know about the Lord. They just didn't know the Lord. They hadn't experienced His mighty works the way their ancestors had. They didn't experience the plagues in Egypt or the splitting of the Red Sea. They hadn't eaten manna from heaven or had their sandals not wore out for 40 years. They hadn't seen the waters of the Jordan River part so that Israel could walk through on dry ground. And they didn't witness the walls of Jericho falling down. They knew the stories, but their life experience was different. Their life experience involved living in cities that they didn't build and eating from olive groves and vineyards that they didn't plant. They were living, finally, in the promised land. In comparison to their ancestors, they were living comfortably. And there's a danger in comfort, is there not? There's a danger in comfort that people can believe, begin to believe that, that God is not necessary, that He is obsolete. We can begin to believe that we have all that we need right here in this world. When our girls were in high school, they went on several mission trips. One went to New York City, another one went to Spain twice, and eventually went to Jordan. And I remember people asking, how could you let your girls go to places so far away and, and dangerous places? And the implication was, aren't you being an irresponsible parent. I'm not sure I could articulate it this well at the time, but now I would say this. The danger in not allowing them to depend fully on God was greater than the danger of going to dangerous places without us being there. Kim and I know this to be true. The safest place that our kids could ever be is in the center of God's will. 
So if they had prayed about it and they believed that God was calling them to go, who were we to stand in their way? They needed to experience God's provision for them because we didn't want them to just know about God. We wanted them to know God. They needed to experience him. And unfortunately, that's kind of what did not happen here in Judges chapter 2. Another generation arose who knew about God, but they hadn't been put in positions to really know him. They hadn't experienced him. They didn't see him as necessary. But there's a huge irony in this passage. Not just for this generation and judges, but for all people throughout history. And here's the irony. We were created to worship. We were made to worship. The need to worship is built into each and every one of us. Our souls need it. It's the whole purpose for which we were created, to worship God. And if we refuse to worship the one true God, who's the only one worthy of worship, our hearts will simply create false gods, idols for us to worship, because we were created for that. So look what happened next. Look back again at verse 11. Then the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt, and followed other gods from among the gods of the people who were around them, and bowed themselves down to them. Thus they provoked the Lord to anger. They forsook the Lord and served Baal and the Ashtaroth. So keeping in mind all that we've talked about, that this was a generation who hadn't seen or experienced the things that their ancestors had seen and experienced, they were living in a land of relative comfort and that all peoples are created to worship. And then add to that the sin of their parents who failed to drive out the inhabitants of the land who were idol worshipers. And you have a recipe that created a generation who embraced idols rather than the one true God. And the natural question that arises from that is, why? What was so appealing about the false gods? What made idol worship more appealing than worshiping the one true God who had been so faithful to them? And so to answer that question, I think we need to talk a little bit about Baal and Ashtaroth. See, Baal was a fertility god who was believed to enable the earth to produce crops and people to produce offspring. Ashtaroth, on the other hand, was a fertility goddess associated with the stars. And in the belief system of the Canaanites, these two were a god and goddess couple. And in order for the Canaanites to have plentiful crops and babies, they had to coerce Baal and Ashtaroth to have sex and thus bless the earth, making it productive. And the way these false gods, Baal and Ashtaroth, were coerced was by watching people having sex with temple prostitutes. And that's what drew the Israelites in. Ladies and gentlemen, there is nothing new under the sun. It's just as true today as it was thousands of years ago. Sex sells, right? Sex is appealing. It's a powerful drive. And as easy as it is for us to sit here this morning and say, that's, that's wrong. We can at least understand the appeal, right? 
We understand that sex is a powerful drive. But here's the thing. It was only the beginning of what Baal would demand from them. It was just the hook. Sex was the hook. It was the bait. It's what lured the people into the trap. And gradually, these false gods require more and more and more. So I want to show you what I mean. Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Psalms, chapter 106. Psalms, chapter 106, verses 34 to 40. And the psalmist here is writing about these times that we're reading about in Judges, chapter 2. Psalms 106, uh, beginning with verse 34. They did not destroy the peoples as the Lord had commanded them. But they mingled with the nations and learned their practices and served their idols, which became a snare to them. They even sacrificed their sons and daughters to the demons and shed innocent blood. The blood of their sons and daughters whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan and the land was polluted with the blood. Thus they became unclean in their practices and played the harlot in their deeds. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people and he abhorred his inheritance. Did you catch it? Sex was the hook. It's what drew them in. It was so appealing. But false gods can never be satisfied. They just demand more and more and more. Because how do you know when a false god is satisfied? If you have a good crop or your wife becomes pregnant, you don't want to offend the god, right? He's been good to me. I don't want to offend him, so I have to give more. But how much? How much is enough and how do you know? On the other hand, if you have a bad crop or your wife doesn't get pregnant, you must have already offended the gods. And so now I have to make peace with the God. I have to give more. But how much? And how do you know? Year after year after year, it's the same story. Always more. How much is enough? Want to know the answer? All. All of it. The idol wants it all. False gods can never be satisfied. Their desire is to consume the sum total of who you are. And so no matter whether you're prospering or suffering, the idol always demands more. Until in this case, the people found themselves literally sacrificing their sons and their daughters on the altar of Baal and Ashtaroth, hoping that finally the gods would be satisfied. You understand, this is real history. These were real people. This isn't just a fairy tale. These were people whose families had lived through miraculous things that you and I can't even begin to imagine. The miracle of the Egyptian plagues and crossing the Red Sea, eating manna for 40 years from heaven that God provided. Their sandals never wore out for 40 years while they wandered in the desert. These people had experienced miraculous things. Their families had experienced miraculous things. Yet here they are, slitting the throats of their sons and daughters, spilling their blood on the altar of Baal and Ashtaroth. This is heinous stuff. But it shouldn't surprise us. Look back in Psalms 106. I want you to see a single word in verse 37. 
They even sacrificed their sons and daughters to the what? Demons. The psalmist, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, correctly identifies these false gods as demons. And that makes perfect sense. Because the reality is we can serve one of two gods in this world. We can serve the one true God, or we can serve Satan. All of the other thousands of gods that people have bowed down to throughout the centuries are just different iterations of Satan, the great deceiver and the father of lies. And ultimately, what does he want? He wants it all, right? He wants it all. He always has wanted to be God. And since he couldn't be God, uh, he wants to destroy the things that are most precious to God, which is people, human souls. Satan and his demons will never be satisfied until they have drug as many human souls as they can to eternal damnation. They want to destroy all that we are. So God's prophetic word to Israel came true. Since their parents and their grandparents didn't drive out the idolatrous people that inhabited the land, those people had become thorns in the sides of the next generation, and their gods had become a snare to Israel, luring them away from the one true God. So in a nutshell, that's the status of the people of Israel in this time in history. Disturbing, isn't it? We're about to read on. And as we do, we're going to see that over and over and over again, Israel repeated this same pattern of sin, idol worship, and rejection of God. But for now, let's turn our attention away from the people of Israel. And I want us to focus on what God was doing in their midst. So let's begin reading again with verse 14. Then the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and he delivered them into the hands of those who plundered them. He sold them into the hands of their enemies all around, whom they were no longer able to resist. Whenever Israel marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them to bring calamity, just as he had sworn to them. So they were greatly distressed. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them from the hands of those who plundered them. Israel, however, did not listen to their judges. Instead, they prostituted themselves with other gods and bowed down to them. They quickly turned from the way of their fathers who had walked in obedience to the Lord's commandments. They did not do as their fathers have done. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for the Israelites, he was with that judge and saved them from the hands of their enemies while that judge was still alive. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning, under those who oppressed them and afflicted them. But when the judge died, the Israelites became even more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods to serve them and bow down to them. They would not give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. Now, there's a ton we could unpack in these verses, but for now what I want us to focus on is God, the one true God, in comparison to the false gods the Israelites have been serving. So based on what we've just read, this is the question I want us to answer. What is the motivation of the Lord's burning anger against Israel? And I don't want us to jump too quickly to conclusions, 
we need to think carefully about this question because I'm not asking what did Israel do to provoke God's anger because that part is really obvious. More what I'm asking is why did the behavior of Israel so seriously inflame God's anger? Why is he delivering them into the hands of their enemies? Is it God's desire to see his people destroyed? Has he given up on them? It's not it at all, is it? And we know this because of verse 16, which says, Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them from the hands of those who plundered them. And then look down at the second half of verse 18, which says, The Lord was moved to pity by their groaning under those who oppressed them and afflicted them. So the very same God whose anger burns against Israel, the very same God who has been delivering them into the hands of their enemies, that same God is also the God who raised up judges to save them. And the very same God who turned Israel over to those groups of people who were oppressing and afflicting them is the same God who took pity on Israel when they groaned under that oppression. Now please keep in mind that this word groan does not mean that they were repentant for their sin, only that they were miserable in their oppression and affliction. It's entirely possible to be miserable and still be unrepentant. And that was the case for Israel in this text. Yet, God took pity on them. He was emotionally impacted by their groaning and misery to such an extent that he intervened on their behalf, even in their unrepentant state. So obviously it's not God's desire to destroy the nation of Israel. He hasn't given up on them. So what then is his motivation for raising up these people groups to oppress his people and to afflict his people and then turn around and raise up judges to come in and rescue them again and again and again? It's love, isn't it? God's motivation is he loves his people. And surely anyone who's here today that's a parent can relate to this. Surely all of us who are parents can relate to times when we've been incredibly angry with our children who've been rebelling against us. And in that anger, we have issued stern discipline. But when we issued that discipline, was it our desire to see our children destroyed? Of course not. We love our children. We only want the best for our children. We want them to prosper. We want them to be successful. We want them to have the deepest desires of their hearts. We discipline because we love. We discipline because we have more life experience than they do. We can see that the ways in which they are trying to be prosperous and successful are just going to lead to misery. So we make them miserable for a time to avoid even greater misery in the future, right? We make them miserable for a time in hopes that they will experience heart change. We discipline in hopes that they will see the error of their ways and know our hearts. To know that we only want the best for them. We discipline because we want them to trust us. So if we, being evil, know how to discipline our children 
How much more does the holy God, the creator and sustainer of the universe, love his people enough to discipline them? We see it in this text. Over and over and over, God disciplines his children out of love because he knows what's best and he wants them to trust him. And so now I want you to think, how does what God wants for his people in this passage differ from what Baal and Ashtaroth wanted for the people? Because there is a sense in which they want the same thing. Both God and Baal want it all, right? We've already talked about the fact that Baal and Ashtaroth wouldn't be satisfied with anything less than all the people were until they consumed them. But isn't that the same thing God wants? By this time in Israel's history, had God not said that he wanted their whole hearts, their whole minds, their whole souls? Hadn't God made it perfectly clear that he wanted all that they were, all they had to offer? So what's the difference? And again, it's love. While the loving God wanted them to have fulfilling one-flesh relationships with their spouses... The false gods wanted them to defile themselves by having sex with whores in the temple. While the loving God wanted them to be fruitful and multiply and have thriving families, the false gods wanted them to kill their children on the altar, spilling their blood. While the loving true God wanted to bless the people with the best he had to offer, the false gods, the demons, wanted their eternal destruction. Do you see the distinction? It's love. The one true God loves his people. So let's finish our passage beginning in verse 20 of chapter 2. <clears throat> so the anger of the Lord burned against Israel. And he said, Because this nation has transgressed the covenant I laid down for their fathers and has not heeded my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations Joshua left when he died. In this way, I will test whether Israel will keep the way of the Lord by walking in it as their fathers did. That is why the Lord had left those nations in place and had not driven them out immediately by delivering them into the hand of Joshua. These are the nations that the Lord left to test all the Israelites who had not known any of the wars in Canaan, if only to teach warfare to the subsequent generations of Israel, especially to those who had not known it formerly. The five rulers of the Philistines, all the Canaanites, the Sidonians, the Hivites, who lived in the mountains of Lebanon from Mount Baal Hermon to Lebo Hamath, these nations were left to test the Israelites to find out whether they would keep the commandments of the Lord, which he had given to their fathers through Moses. Thus the Israelites continued to live among the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And they took the daughters of those people in marriage, gave their own daughters to their sons, and served their gods. They didn't learn, did they? Over and over and over again, Israel kept repeating the same pattern of idol worship. And over and over and over again, Continued to show his love. So what should we take away from this sad state of affairs? As we wrap up our time together today, is there anything 
that we can learn thousands of years later that applies to us. We could probably spend weeks in this chapter, but for today I'd like us to see two things. And the first one is this. Never underestimate the ability of the human heart to be drawn to the worship of false gods. Remember these people we're talking about, they were God's chosen people. Their families had experienced incredible miracles. They'd heard the stories of how the Almighty God had delivered their people. And again, they were living in cities they didn't build, eating from vineyards and olive groves that they didn't plant. Why? Because God. Because God. Because God had been so faithful to them. Yet, here they are, having sex with temple prostitutes and slitting the throats of their children. It seems unfathomable to us, but it's still happening today. Our specific sins might not be the same, but we fall into the trap of idol worship just the same as they did. Our false gods just look a bit different. We worship things like money or power or education or sex or substances or sports or jobs, material goods, comfort, romance, even family. John Calvin famously said, The human heart is a perpetual idol factory. And he was right. Pastor Tim Keller expounded on Calvin's quote saying, Our hearts have an unlimited capacity to take good things and turn them into ultimate things. Our hearts deify them as the center of our lives because we think they can give us significance and security, safety, and fulfillment if we attain them. It's true, isn't it? Don't we all know someone whose life has been destroyed by the worship of money and material things. The workaholic whose family is neglected because he's giving everything he has to give the big house and the nice cars and the fancy vacations and the boat and the lake house until it all blows up and the family falls apart. Or the person who worships at the altar of sex and engages in adultery or gets addicted to pornography because the sex is so appealing until it takes over and they're left with nothing but sex or the poor person who worships romance and just knows that their life won't be complete until they find their soulmate and so they go to relationship after relationship after relationship Or they end up marrying someone that they have no business marrying. Only to find that it didn't satisfy, it still leaves them empty. Or the couple who worship their children, placing them in the position that only God should be. Serving their children's every need above all else. Only to have their children rebel or their marriage destroyed. Or the person who worships sports or their child's sports. And once knew a guy whose child got a full-ride athletic scholarship to a D1 school. The ultimate dream of most Hoosier dads, right? But in the end, he said he added up what he had spent on travel ball over the years, and it came out to over $80,000. 
And in the process, he lost his marriage. You know what he said? Wasn't worth it. I can't even count the number of times in my life I've sat with someone in their living room or in my office while they pour out their heart in misery of their own making because they've been involved in something, made something other than God their idol, and it was destroying their life. And much like the Israelites, they've cried out to God in their misery and vowed to set a new course with God as the center, and they did for a while. But before long, they're dabbling in that thing again. I'm stronger now. I can handle it until it gets its hooks set and they're pulled back in. Sounds a lot like Israel, doesn't it? Rebel, repent, repeat. There's not a one of us here who's not susceptible to creating false gods. We're still doing the same things Israel did, just in different packaging. There's nothing new under the sun. We haven't made a lot of progress in the last 4,000 years. And it's just as destructive now as it was then. These false gods cannot be satisfied until they have it all. Until they've destroyed us and condemned us to an eternity separated from God. But that leads me to the second thing we can learn from Judges chapter 2, which is that all hope is not lost because the chains of enslavement to these false gods can be broken by the one true God. Earlier we talked about the fact that in some sense, God and the false gods all want the same thing. They all want the total of who we are. But there is a distinct difference. Because the goal of all false gods is to take everything we have and destroy us. And the goal of the one true God is to give all he has to redeem us. God's love and compassion for his people was so great that while we were yet sinners, he sent his one and only son to die for us. His word says that it's not his desire to harm us, but to prosper us and to give us a future. He wants to take our sins, which are as scarlet, and cover them in the blood of his son, washing us white as snow, removing our sins as far as the east is from the west. He wants to adopt us as his sons and daughters, sending forth his Holy Spirit into us so that we will call out to him, Abba, Father, Daddy. He wants to transform us into the image of his Son so that we can live as children of God above reproach in a crooked and perverse generation so that we will appear as lights in the world. He wants to use us as his hands and feet to bring the good news to those who haven't heard. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. Do you see the stark difference here? It couldn't be any more clear. We have but two choices of who to surrender our lives to in this world. False gods representing Satan or the one true God who loves us. He sent his son for us. He wants to redeem us and he wants to give us the hope of eternal life. If there has never been a time when you have 
purposely surrendered your life to the, thr- the, the one true God, let today be that day. I'm going to be hanging around after service. There will be other people hanging around. We would love the chance to just talk you through this process and pray. And if you've been dabbling in sin, thinking it's no big deal, beware. It wants to become your God. And it will take everything you have and destroy you. But there is a better way. The one true God wants to set you free. I'll leave you with this, reading from Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Let's pray. Lord, may each and every one of us know and experience your good and acceptable and perfect will for our lives. May each of us gathered here today present our bodies to you as living sacrifices, redeemed by the blood of your Son, Jesus. And may we be transformed. Father, please transform us into the image of your Son. Use us as instruments of your grace to bring the good news to those who need to hear. We ask these things in Jesus' name.